Welcome to READ, the Research, Education, and Advocacy Podcast. In this series, prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. READ is produced by the Winward Institute. I'm Danielle Scarano, Winward's research coordinator and a classroom teacher. For our first episode, I invite you into the world of infants. Yes, infants, miniature, adorable versions of us as adults. Infants are rapidly learning from the world around them. In this episode, you'll learn about how infancy is a critical time period for learning and language development. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Richard Aslan. Dr. Aslan is a distinguished research scientist at Haskins Laboratories in New Haven, Connecticut. Prior to joining Haskins in 2017, he was on the faculty at the University of Rochester for 33 years, where he established the Rochester Baby Lab. Dr. Aslan has published widely in areas of infant development, including language acquisition. The Winward community welcomed Dr. Aslan as the 2019 Robert J. Schwartz Memorial Lecturer. Welcome, Dr. Aslan. Thanks very much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, and it's wonderful to learn from you. I know I just talked a little bit about your bio, but why don't you give us a brief overview of who you are and your career? Well, I started out as an undergraduate at Michigan State University, and I had the opportunity there, which was quite unusual at the time, to have a summer fellowship. And in that summer fellowship, I happened to work in a lab that studied babies, which I found completely fascinating. I had had two younger siblings who were born when I was in high school, and so I had a little bit of experience with babies. And when I got to Michigan State, this opportunity came along, and I found it fascinating. I I really enjoyed studying young children and trying to figure out what they knew and how they learned. Yeah, I mean, that's it's extremely impressive. I mean, 33 years at University of Rochester and now at Haskins. As a teacher, I've always wondered about the development of my students' brains. And I'm so curious about the learning that occurs during infancy. Earlier, we had an opportunity to talk in you were actually discussing the innovative ways that you as a researcher is capturing the brain activity in infant brains. So how do you conduct the research on infants? Well, my laboratory does two types of research. We study both the behavior of infants, and I can talk about that in a few minutes if you like, but we also, as you pointed out, study how the brain develops, and we use a variety of techniques. Some of the techniques uh, involve placing sensors on the head of the baby, And so people might be familiar with EEG, electrical activity from the brain. So that's one method that we use. And another method is MRI. Um, People are probably familiar with an MRI machine. Typically, your experience with an MRI machine has to do with looking for some anatomical feature of the brain that might uh, have a problem. That's not what we focus on. We focus on the functional activity of the brain. So for example, if you present a stimulus, and it's a visual stimulus, then the visual part of the brain will be active. Similarly, if you present an auditory stimulus, the auditory part of the brain will be active. And you can study mechanisms of learning, either in the visual or the auditory domain, using that technique. And we also use a third technique, has a kind of complicated name called near-infrared spectroscopy. Can you spell that for me? (laughs) (laughs) N-I-R-S is the abbreviation. (laughs) And uh, with NIRS, you're also placing sensors on the head, but the sensors are delivering light to the head and measuring the light that comes back from the brain. And when the brain is active, it's absorbing oxygen, 
and the blood that's surrounding that part of the brain changes color. And so you can actually measure the change in the color of the blood in the brain that's due to the increase in neural activity that demands more oxygen. So you did mention some of the behavioral measures. So you're conducting these studies using the different types of brain imaging and some of the behavioral measures. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So one of the most powerful methods that has been used to study infants is where do they direct their visual attention? So for example, if there are two pictures that are presented side by side, and one picture is a picture of the mother, and the other is a picture of some strange female person that they've never seen before, that at some age, babies will have a preference to look at the picture of the mother because it's a highly familiar object in their environment. So that, that mere subtle change in gaze, looking longer at the mother versus some other woman's face, tells you that they can discriminate between the two faces and that they have a preference for the mother's face. And there are other techniques that are more subtle than that. So there are devices that can very precisely measure where on a particular visual stimulus the baby is looking. So again, taking the example of a face, if there's just a single face that's presented on a screen to the baby, you can determine whether or not they're looking at the eyes or the mouth or someplace other than that, like the hairline. Uh, and particularly if the stimulus is a video and the person in the video happens to be talking, you can sync up where they're looking with what the infant is hearing that's coming from the audio stimulus for that particular face. So you can link together the baby's visual attention more precisely to the particular type of stimulus that's being presented. Interesting. Well, you mentioned visual processing, auditory processing. And what about language learning. So what type of language learning is occurring during infancy? Well, one of the really interesting things about infant language development is that infants are essentially born with the capacity to tell the difference between any type of speech sound that they might be confronted with in their native language. So for example, in Japanese, they do not in that language make a distinction between the R sound and the L sound. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not two particular types of sounds in that domain in Japanese, whereas in English, we can discriminate between R and L. And interestingly enough, Japanese babies who are put in an experiment to determine whether they can discriminate between R and L can. So they actually have abilities that are superior to their parents because their parents have essentially unlearned the distinction between R and L because it's not necessary in their native language. So infants have this very sophisticated ability to discriminate any potential sound that might be relevant in their language, and then they kind of unlearn the ones that they don't need. So early on, this is a kind of a stark example of the fact that in most domains, of course adults are better than babies. They typically perform better on almost any task. This is one exception where the babies are actually better than some of the adults. So in terms of some of the language learning for later child development, are there certain early markers at the infant level that would contribute to later language learning throughout childhood? Yes, there's been some interesting work done by Patricia Kuhl at the University of Washington where they measure early on in life, so typically at 6 to 12 months of age, the ability that infants have to discriminate between the sounds that are relevant in their native language and the sounds that are not. So for example, R and L is relevant in English, but there might be other sounds that we don't use in English. Mm 
And it turns out that from that ability to discriminate the relevant sounds from the irrelevant sounds is, is a predictor or a marker of their subsequent ability two years later to be able to have a high vocabulary, for example. So these early speech perception skills seem to be correlated with the ability to learn the words of the language over the next couple of years of life. So thinking about this early learning during infancy, are there any important implications for education and parenting? So as parents and as educators, what is important for us to be looking out for, just be knowledgeable about the language learning at the infant level or even in early childhood? Well, I think most parents simply have to be aware of the fact that presenting language to their child is important. And that can come through book reading. It can come from gathering the baby's attention so that they're attending to you when you're talking to them. Lots of other sounds in the environment, whether the television is on or whether you're having a phone call, that's presenting information that could be relevant to learning, but babies aren't really paying attention to that. What they pay attention to is the language that's being directed to them. And that sharing of attention, right, turn-taking back and forth, even if the baby is not speaking, but just making sure that the baby is paying attention to you when you're speaking to them is important because we know those are the words that are getting into the baby's brain most effectively. So I want to switch gears to school. For educators and for researchers, we want to make sure that we're bridging research and practice. And for the Windward School and for me personally, we're really invested in this more intentional integration between research and practice. For you as a researcher, why do you think it's important to bridge this gap? Well, I think if we're going to deal with public policy, and that includes education, we have to try to optimize the environment in which children are learning. And some of that learning, of course, is going to occur in the home prior to children going off to school. But the readiness that infants have when they're in the home has to be expressed once they're in a school environment because there's so much information to acquire. So if we can figure out what the optimal ways are to structure the information in a classroom or pedagogical setting for the infant that is a custom fit to the mechanisms that they have available to them, then I think that's going to be most advantageous. For children who are having difficulty learning, I think we have to figure out ways, both from basic research and how it's applied in the classroom, that are going to optimize their learning outcomes. And the Windward School, I think, has particularly effective methods to direct children's attention, to build the whole language environment into every aspect of the curriculum so that they're maximizing the opportunity that children have to learn and attend to the right information. I really hope you enjoyed your visit at the Windward School at our Manhattan campus. You mentioned some explicit practices that happen every day at Windward. Was there anything else that stood out to you about the learning that's occurring here? Well, one thing that really stood out to me is that when the teachers are engaged with the children, the children are incredibly engaged with the teachers. And they, of course, have help. There's typically another teacher in the room who's directing the child's attention if they're wandering off a little bit from time to time. And I think the overall structure of the learning environment is really suited to the kind of intense engagement that's necessary to learn optimally. I have so many more questions for you. I know that you're going to provide a lot of information at our lecture. But I do want to ask you, was there anything that you want our audience to know that I didn't mention or anything about you or the where you see the future of research going? 
Well, I think there's two things. One is that we don't want to have parents be overly concerned about every individual episode that's happening in the lives of their young children, that somehow they're failing their children by not doing things that are perfectly optimal. Children are amazing learners, and if they're exposed to the right kind of structure in the environment, they're going to do fine. And even those children who have some difficulties with learning, I think that we just have to seek the environment that's going to be best or most effective for them. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting and has sort of a future direction is that I think we can meld some of the basic research with the more applied practical educational principles by trying to have mechanisms that give us a better handle on how the young child is learning in that particular situation. And children differ. They differ quite a lot. Their ability to pay attention, their ability to stay on task. And if we can structure the environment in such a way that it fits that particular child, I think that's going to be advantageous. And one way that I think we can do that is to not simply rely on their behavior, that is whether they can write appropriately on a particular task, but also assess their ability to learn using brain mechanisms. So one potential avenue for the future is that sometimes behavior doesn't reveal a problem and the brain could reveal a problem earlier. We wouldn't even see it in their behavior until many months later. And if we can gain better assessments of how they're functioning by using these brain mechanisms, then we have the potential for intervening earlier so that we can see something and try to affect positive change even before we would have been able to see it behaviorally. And then match it with the appropriate education that's going to be best for them. Correct. There's so much innovation in brain research and education. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Where can our listeners find you for more information about your research? Well, my research is being done at Haskins Laboratories, which is in New Haven, Connecticut. And I have a website called Haskins Baby Lab. And there's a list there of the kind of projects that we're engaged in. And uh, we'd welcome people to take a look at it. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of Read. To learn more about Read or upcoming episodes, visit readpodcast.org. You can also access my top Read bookmarks or top moments from each episode by visiting each episode page on our website. My goal is to continue to connect and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research and education. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. You can also like or follow WinWord's social media pages to find out more about upcoming speakers, episodes, and events. Until next time, readers, 